Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist. I almost stopped there. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 117 with Lyme expert, Dr. Nicola Ducharme. And also with us in the studio is our certified show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Miss Aurora. Hello. And in this episode, you will learn about Dr. Ducharme's new book, Lime Brain, how gluten can weaken the blood-brain barrier, and about neuroplasticity and the importance uh, positive thinking has with that. Yes, these are all very brainy subjects. Okay, don't kick me off the show. No. You'd have to kick me off first. I've been doing it longer. Okay. (laughs) And a special shout out to those of you participating in the Keto Challenge. We are wrapping up the first phase of that, the 21 days, and we'll be getting feedback from everybody and find out how ketones are doing. I imagine there's going to be some good, some bad, and some ugly there, but I'm very curious to see what the overall sense is with trying exogenous ketones to perk up the brain stuff. So this is the perfect episode for Lime Brain, right? Yes, yes, it is. Yes, yes, indeed. And also want to mention that we do have a donate button now, a contribute button on our homepage, and we want to thank those of you who've contributed so far. Aurora? Yes, I just wanted to thank Natasha, Jasmine, Elizabeth, Izzy, Sandra, Sharon, Dan, Jill, Dawn, Aaron, and Paula. Thank you so much for clicking on that donate button. It really helps. It does. It costs us about $300 in cash each month to produce Lime Ninja Radio. And then when you factor in Aurora's time and mine, it's more like 3000 And we're not expecting you to cover $3,000. We do this because we really care and want the information out there. But it's nice to have a little bit of that 300 covered. So thank you very much, all of you. And also, we're really having fun with our book giveaway. And last week's winner of Connie Strasheim's book was Stephanie. So congrats, Stephanie. You're in Stephanie. I said Stephanie. Sorry, Stephanie. Congrats, Stephanie. You are now officially a contest ninja. And be on the lookout for an email from me on how to get your book. Okay, Roar, let's hear a little bit more about today's guest, Dr. Nicola Ducharme. Yeah. Dr. Nicola Ducharme is the founder and medical director of Restore Medicine, an integrative medical center based in San Diego, California. Having done her naturopathic training and completed her Bachelor of Health Sciences in Australia, she moved to the United States and obtained her doctorate of naturopathic medicine and started a private practice soon thereafter. 
She is the author of The Lyme Diet, Nutritional Strategies for Healing from Lyme Disease, as well as a chapter in Connie Strasheim's book, Insights into Lyme Disease Treatment, 13 Lyme Literate Healthcare Practitioners Share Their Healing Strategies. That is a mouthful. Yes, a little bit. I love, but it's all good stuff. <laughs> it is really good stuff. I love speaking with Dr. Ducharme. She has such a wonderful insight into health and particularly people with Lyme disease. She's a wonderful resource, and we're so glad to have her back on the show. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Dr. Nicola Ducharme. Hello, Nicola speaking. Hi, it's McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. Hello, how are you? Wonderful. I got your message, so I just got home, and we'll just jump right in. <laughs> oh, that would be super. Thank you. No problem. So you've got a new book. I do have a new book. Tell me all about it. Yeah, so the book is called Lion Brain, and it really was prompted by hearing so many of my patients struggling um, with you know, the thing that we call Lion Brain, which I associate mostly with the cognitive aspects of Lyme disease, but does also extend to some of the psycho-emotional symptoms like depression and anxiety and things like that. Um, and I had many a patient tell me that that was their biggest struggle, that they could handle the fatigue and the joint pain and, and all the other symptoms, but they just, you know, it was slightly intolerable to them to just not feel that they could function and focus and concentrate and take care of things in their day-to-day lives. It is such a big part of Lyme disease. I mean, my patients say the same thing. I've heard stories like, oh, I can't read or write without feeling nauseous, or I feel like I've dropped 40 IQ points, stories like that, right? Yeah. Yes, I've heard that a lot. I feel so stupid, Dr. Nicola. Just, you know, I I used to be a smart person, and now I just don't feel smart anymore, and it's it's very moralizing, you know, and you, you hear stories like people driving up the road, and they can't remember where they set off to go and so they turn around and come back home and I had one patient say I, I went driving along and I couldn't remember where I was going so I turned around to go back home but then I couldn't remember where home was and it's just awful it's really impacting people's quality of life significantly and what I mean we really don't have the testing at this point to really say okay the the bacteria has been cleared or not I mean that's just around the corner a couple of years but right now Do you find that some of this is post Lyme disease that, you know, it's, it's in the realm of Alzheimer's disease. It's in the realm of chronic fatigue. It's in the realm of, you know, that sort of brain damage or brain mitochondrial damage. Look, there are some cases where there is sort of, you know, damage that extends beyond treatment and, um, and seems to be in the more permanent department. So I'm not going to say that never happens, but I do feel that the majority of patients um, can get a lot of recovery from the, the Lyme brain kind of symptoms. And I break it down in my book that the, the sort of, there's a few different causes of the Lyme brain. And one of them is infection and infection certainly can invade the brain and, and permeate the blood brain barrier and all of that stuff. Um, so to some extent, it's the infection itself, but a lot of it is also the inflammatory response, and that can be coming from anywhere in the body. So it it's not necessarily that they have infection in the brain, although they might, but it could be infection in other parts of the body, kicking up the inflammatory cytokines and 
all the inflammatory cascade that goes after it. And then those chemicals going up to the brain and, as I say, sort of causing a fireworks show. So <laughs> that, like you that. know, that sort of is a little bit secondary to the actual infection. And then there's also toxicity, and that can be from not only Lyme but from other things. I mean, I know we, we were looking at how big of a role heavy metals play and, and mold plays, and candida even can create toxins that impact the brain. Um, and then finally is amino acid imbalance and neurotransmitter imbalance. And so all of those things, you know, the inflammation, the neurotransmitter imbalance, they can persist beyond infection as well. So if people are having cognitive symptoms sort of that persist beyond their line treatment per se, then it doesn't necessarily even mean that it's kind of permanent neurological damage. It may just be the, some of these other factors that need correcting. I see. And what role does nutrition play in this? Oh, well, you know me. I think nutrition plays a huge role in everything. <laughs> but, but there's a couple of things really to, to point out. I mean, I think the first is just how detrimental gluten is to anybody with Lyme disease. And I know that's not breaking news, but just in the context of Lyme brain, I mean, gluten firstly can um, increase the production of zonulin, which can impact the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. So eating gluten can actually compromise the blood-brain barrier. And so that's not good. But also just what I said before, the inflammatory cascade, if someone's eating the wrong foods, and especially then with the inflammation in the gut that can lead to leaky gut, then, you know, the cytokines, again, can go from the gut to the brain to contribute to cognitive symptoms also. So really any food that causes any kind of immune response in the gut, whether it be a, a sort of quote-unquote proper food allergy like an IgE-mediated um, food allergy or an IgG food sensitivity or in the case of gluten, you know, that autoimmune kind of reaction can all increase the inflammatory mediators that go to the brain and and cause problems in the brain. So that's one element of it is just, you know, eating foods that fuel inflammation. And then, of course, people can eat foods that reduce inflammation. So eating the healthy omega-3 fatty acids um, and making sure that they're eating, if they're eating protein, meats and poultry and things like that, making sure they're, it's grass-fed beef and it's organic chicken because... Firstly, for the fatty, the fatty acid composition, if you're eating grain-fed meat, then there's going to be a lot more saturated fats, which which do damage to the nervous system. But if people are eating grass-fed, and um, then it's actually a higher ratio of, of healthier fats. And then, you know, fish, obviously, and flax oil is a vegetarian form of omega-3 fatty acids. So that can all reduce inflammation and be somewhat healing to the brain. And then there's other things like people just don't don't always drink enough water, and you know <laughs> it's so I mean, true. I'm laughing because it's just so true. It's so true, and it's so simple. Yes. just drink more water, stay hydrated. Your brain will work better. You know, exactly. And I don't want to oversimplify and say that that's all there is to it. But you know, in some cases, we need to look at the simple things as well as the complicated things. It's so easy to go down the rabbit holes of, of these complicated pathways and forget the basics: sleep, water, you know, have healthy relationships. 
it's 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 very like you say it's very very easy to forget now can we back up for a second because we toss around we everybody out there you me things like blood brain barrier and the zonulin and what what exactly is the blood brain barrier well it's interesting because when we when we sort of picture blood brain barrier we imagine our brain sort of in this nice little kind of well um, petitioned, like almost Ziploc baggy, right? Just to keep it all protected from everything. But the blood-brain barrier is actually made up by a capillary network. So it's actually made up by teeny tiny little blood vessels. Um, but the, the, the purpose of it is to protect the brain and to dictate what can enter the brain and what stays away. And so it plays into a number of different things. I mean, we want oxygen to get to the brain. We want nutrients to get to the brain. Um, but we also would prefer toxins not get to the brain, although we know that some do. So it's just, you know, it's sort of the, the century point um, where, you know, certain substances can cross easily and certain substances can't. And, you know, another thing that's interesting to look at with that is that it impacts with antibiotic therapy. One of the big questions we have in antibiotic therapy is, you know, which medications cross the blood-brain barrier and which don't. Um, and that relates to a number of different things, the size of the molecule of the antibiotic, um, how lipophilic it is, and by that I mean how much it gravitates towards lipids um, because the membranes, the cell membranes are made up of lipids. And so a substance that attracts towards lipids will be able to pass through membranes more easily. Um, so there's a few factors that determine which antibiotics can, you know, can cross the blood-brain barrier and get to the brain where they're needed. Um, and that sort of, that makes an important consideration when, when designing treatment plans and protocols, especially for people with Lyme brain. And that's why a lot of people like medications like Rocephin is a big one, Bicillin. The IV and injectable medications tend to cross the blood brain barrier better than many of the orals. And that's why, you know, a lot of the times they work so well. I see. And then what role does zonulin play in disrupting, and I know it works in the gut too, it disrupts the gut as well as the blood-brain barrier. Right. So eating gluten promotes uh, the production of zonulin, which, like I said, it sort of impacts the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. So I always just think in very simple kind of pictures, but you almost imagine it sort of breaking down the wall, like taking bricks out of the wall, um, so that the blood-brain barrier becomes more leaky. I mean, we're, most people have heard of the term leaky gut, and so now the term leaky brain is coming about. And like I said, it, it, it impacts what is allowed in and what's you know what comes out. Um, and the concern then is that a greater number of toxins can reach the brain and cause problems. And is zonulin only produced by gluten or can it be released by other foods or other reactions to foods? I know. I mean, gluten is one of the primary ones and that's really the one I've studied because gluten really has a unique impact on the body. Um, so I, I don't know the extent to which other foods will trigger that. 
Okay. I know milk, some milk proteins share a very similar shape to the gluten, and they can also be triggering in other things, uh, but I haven't studied with it zonulin either. So that's something I can look up. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing that, that I find interesting, and this is something that I was fascinated by when I was working more with kids on the autism spectrum, um, but is the role of some of the uh, the peptides in the brain. And so I don't test this so much in my adult patients or my Lyme patients, but I used to test this a lot in kids. And it was looking at urinary peptides. And so in the urine test, they were looking for specific sequences of amino acids that um, that were found in gluten and in casein. And I, I'm pretty sure now they're looking at the similar sequences in soy products as well. And um, the research was showing that those specific sequences of amino acids could bind with opioid receptors in the brain. Yes. And so they were causing a lot of um, a lot of problem. And I used to see this a lot in, in the kids, that gluten and dairy products were almost, you know, like drugs for some of these people. And that they had very strong withdrawal type reactions when they stopped eating them. So it's it's quite frightening when we see examples like that to see just the impact that foods can have on the whole body, but on the brain in particular. You know, that's funny you mentioned that. I have this long-term patient who has very serious health issues, and one of them is she's been a lifelong smoker and finally was able to break the habit, you know, bless bless her heart. And she's always had a problem with sugar as well. But once she stopped, and she, she actually has some self-awareness of this. She kind of knows she's doing this. But once she stopped the cigarettes, she's replaced it with a specific cookie. And she's just as addicted to this cookie as she was to the cigarettes. And, you know, she's a little frustrated because now she has to break the cookie addiction. But that whole opioid connection up there can just be so sticky you know it's looking yeah. for something to turn it on right absolutely oh back to lyme disease yes and the basics so in your book you talk about sleep you talk about exercise you talk about exercising the brain where where does the emotions come in with stress and managing that well, I think they're really, I mean, they're really closely tied. So, I mean, I think that what we're, it's clear that Lyme impacts the emotional state. And I've always said that, to me, there's two branches of that. I mean, one is that people who've been chronically ill and in a lot of pain and just not able to live their lives the way that they would choose, that's understandably going to create depression and anxiety and the stresses of how am I going to make this work and what am I going to do for my children and how are we going to pay the medical bills and and just the despondence of treatment so hard and you know so there's it's sort of just an inherent reactive emotional response to that that I think is very natural and very understandable but you know the, it's there's it's there's another side of the the coin where it's the actual infections driving those symptoms and those symptoms are just as real as joint pain or a headache um so it's really tricky i think that lyme has a double challenge in that um it's sort of an uphill battle these patients have these sort of two different aspects to deal with so i 
I really believe that, firstly, there's a lot to be said for kind of, and I, I want to be careful with this because it's, I don't want to make it sound like anyone's kind of perpetuating their own situation, but I do firmly believe that one's thought life dictates a lot of one's emotional response and subsequently one's outcome. Um, and so I'm kind of big on that as part of it in terms of retraining the brain in positive pathways. And I just sometimes talk about um, the neuroplasticity effect and just how profound that is. Um, and so I've had people work with that and really work on retraining their thoughts and then their emotional kind of ability started going down. Like they just started shifting into a more positive place um, because I think their emotions were following their thought patterns. So I think that's part of it. And then I think, you know, just purely from a physiological standpoint, there are a lot of times that neurotransmitters just get out of whack. And so maybe some natural amino acid support or something like that can help get them back into balance. Um, and then just, yeah, the, the stress response, as you were mentioning, just having people work on ways to just kind of diffuse the situation, manage their stress responses. Um, and that takes the stress off the adrenals as well, but it can also really help with emotional kind of balance and emotional stability. Now, that's fascinating. So I want to tie together, I'm going to tell a very short story. I want to tie together kind of the opioid part of the brain and the, the feel-good part of the brain and the, I'm going to say the loop. I mean, we get we can get stuck in a, a negative loop where the emotions uh, negatively impact the thoughts, then the thoughts negatively impact the, the emotions, and we just get stuck in the, the, the downward spike, spiral that everybody's so familiar with. And right. how do you interrupt this? So many moons ago, I love podcasts, so I, I put on my headphones during the summer and sit on a tractor and just listen to as much as I can. I was listening to a, a Tim Ferriss podcast. He was interviewing this expert. She had a, the first PhD in the country on games, like l video games, right? And interestingly enough, she got a severe concussion and wasn't getting better. And her symptoms were very much like Lyme brain. I mean, she was stuck in bed. She couldn't tolerate sounds. She couldn't watch tell. I mean, she just was stuck, just like a person with Lyme disease. And one of the things that she did to help pull her out of that was she had her sister. Well, she created herself as the hero of, of the game. And then she'd have a daily game like just see three birds outside her window today. So that was the game. So all these little tiny wins would give a little burst of dopamine and she'd have a little win in, in the sea of, oh, my life has totally fallen apart. So just that little place to stand on, these little wins and these little dopamine bursts begin to do. And really, that's that's what these brilliant, really good games like Super Mario Brothers does is early on in the game, they let you win so you get hooked. Right. You know, you're addicted. But it's like we can use, like you're saying, with the neuroplasticity and the neurofeedback, we can use the brain's uh, desire for this dopamine for in our favor if, if we're strategic about it. And I think that's, you know, you're not getting exactly from that pathway, but that's that's what you're talking about. And you do talk about neurofeedback and 
one thing you bring up is the brainwave entrenchment. And are you talking about the audio or another program? What do you mean by the the brainwave entrainment, training the well, brain? Well, there's a few different programs, and some of them work on sort of binaural beats. So, and most of them are primarily audio. Some do have you know glasses with certain lights or whatever. I tend to find most Lyme patients don't like that because a lot of people are light sensitive, and it just kind of throws them for a loop. But yeah, they're more. Um, like audio programs that people can listen to at home. And um, Holosync was the first one I ever um, got into, and it's actually very pleasant to do. It's just sitting there listening, and it sounds like um, running water and some little gongs, and it's just a very sort of peaceful, relaxing kind of thing. But there is um, technology behind it that helps to balance not only brainwave frequencies but also balance the hemispheres of the brain. Um so it's just something that's easy enough for people to do at home. It doesn't cost a lot of money. They don't have to go to see a doctor. Um, where neurofeedback, I love it, but it's more, you know, it's more a therapy-based, a clinic-based kind of modality. And there are lots of different types of neurofeedback out there. Do you have any thoughts about a system that's better or how do you identify somebody who's trained enough to help you versus just kind of string you along and take your money? Well, I think that's a really great question. So I researched neurofeedback for years and years and years. And actually my first year in naturopathic school in 1999, I went and took a neurofeedback course with the Otmer, Otmans, Otmers, um, and they're sort of pioneers in the field from back in the 70s and and uh, so I've always been fascinated with it. And I was looking at different systems. But I went to a training for this one particular system. It was a weekend-long workshop. And they were saying, okay, so the protocol for depression is this. The protocol for anxiety is this. The protocol for insomnia is this. The protocol for cognitive issues is this. And I sort of put my hand up and said, well, my patients have all of those things, so what do I do? And they said, well... <laughs> <laughs> try something for six sessions, and if it doesn't work, try something else. Uh, and I was like, yeah, sorry, that's not actually, it's not good enough. Right. So I just kind of kept on my journey and kept open, and then I learned of the system that I have now in my office, which is NeuroOptimal, and it's um, the company is Zengar, Canadian-based company. And what I love about the NeuroOptimal system is that there isn't actually user input, and so there's there's not really the, op the opportunity for user error. So the user is definitely setting up the patient, making sure it's hooked up correctly, you know, testing that there's not too much interference and running the program. But the software is built to kind of, you know, evaluate the different parts of the brain that are out of whack from a sort of electrical frequency standpoint and sort of gently bring them all back into balance uh -huh. rather than, pushing more of this and less of that, more alpha, less beta, yeah, you know, yeah. that kind of thing, right. which concerned me because there are practitioners out there who are working on systems that do that who are brilliant and they've been doing it for years and they just know it well enough to know exactly you know, the right thing. Mm -hmm. For me, starting out, I felt much more comfortable with the NeuroOptimal and it's turned out to be a great, great system. And they do have a practitioner referral on their Zengar.com website and they have practitioners all over the world. And, and they do have a, a referral list. So let's let's talk about this a little bit more because this is fascinating to me. And um, I'm going to ask a big picture question. Then I'm just going to ask like 
how does it work? So, and not how does it work through the machine itself, but right. from the patient's perspective, right? Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. So, so the big, so the big picture is: does this system kind of ping the brain and then see how it responds and then adjust based on the response? Yeah, so I mean, biofeedback by definition means that you're presenting the body with information about itself in a way that allows it to regulate itself. Okay, so neurofeedback is just that applied to the brain. So how the machine will work is the the patient is hooked up to, I, I actually just use some, the music that comes with it, so it's just an audio. They have their headphones on. And there, there's electrodes on their head. So their brain frequency information is going into the computer. So it's just taking information. It's not putting anything back into them. Um, it goes into the computer. The computer will analyze it. And then how it's set up is when the brainwave frequencies go into nice kind of healthy, more balanced patterns, um, the patient hears music and it's, it's uninterrupted. And when the brain frequencies get kind of wacky, the patient will hear tiny little breaks in the music, almost imperceptible, almost like listening to a record with scratches on it, although that dates me because I know what that sounds like. <laughs> well, that makes both of us. Yeah. Um, so the patient's listening to the music and there's like tiny little breaks in the music. Now, they don't have to do anything. They're not trying to make the music go. They're not. They're just sitting there enjoying and relaxing. But the brain figures out the reward system and it yes. goes, oh, I know. If I act right, then I, I get, get yes. the music without the bips in it. And so over time, it will learn and it will correct itself moment by moment to act in those healthier patterns. So then the analogy I use from there is it's like going to the gym. If I go to the gym today and lift a weight, my bicep might be sore tomorrow, but it's not really going to be stronger but if I go to the gym, you know, two or three times a week for three months and lift a weight consistently, then that muscle is going to be stronger even at rest. It's going to be stronger 24-7. And that's the training effect on the brain. If we keep teaching it to come back into healthier patterns and keep giving it the reward for doing that, it then holds those patterns 24-7. How long before your patients start seeing results with the neurofeedback? So most people will start seeing results around session five or six. Um, I have found around 10 sessions, they're like, oh yeah, this is good. But I really tell people, especially my Lyme patients, to expect 20 sessions. Okay. And is that once a week, twice a week, every day? No, I think twice a week is ideal. It's nice to give the, the brain a few days to sort of adjust and, and decompress between treatments. Although, having said that, the treatments are not difficult for the patient. Um, very, very, very rarely. I can only think of really one time that a patient felt worse after the treatment. Most people feel very relaxed and um, and it's actually a very pleasant experience for them. But... Um, so twice a week would be ideal, I would say. Once a week is okay if that's all people can do, but twice a week will get, get them there faster. So it is just like lifting weights. There needs to be a little recovery period in between. Yeah, recovery period and also just that consistency for that initial round of sessions. And then we have people that just come in, you know, once a month or a couple of times a month for a tune-up. Right. 
and um, that's not absolutely necessary, but people like, you know, they feel good with that. Sure. Uh, I would imagine that you know, once once those pathways are myelinated, and the myelin is the wrapping of the nerve, and it allows us to do things automatically without thinking. So a whole pattern of, you know, it's the button. When somebody pushes your button and when you find yourself, you know, yelling at your kid and you're calling them the dog's name kind of thing, that's the, that's the, that's the myelin. Uh, so once those pathways are, are myelinated, it's like we can fall back into using those rather than the newly created pathways. So I would imagine topping off the tank, so to speak, or keeping, keeping fit, brain fit would, would have some benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I and I think it comes down to a, a few different things too. I mean, that's where I think that um, we have so much power. Like our brains are so powerful, so we can use that for ourselves, and we can use it against ourselves. Um, <laughs> so, so true. Just, you know, all of the different things that we can do and cumulative. Like, you know, you work with the diet, get some neurofeedback, really work on kind of you know retraining your thought life. Um, I think all of these things add up. Now, By the way, have you ever heard, uh, this is going back to your story that you told before, have you ever heard of Caroline Leaf? Dr. Caroline Leaf? I'm going to say no. Okay. So she's somebody that I have listened to um, a lot of podcasts and things. That When you said that, it reminded no, me of her. No, you know what? That was her. Absolutely. We was her. Yes. I wondered if it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's yeah. great. Okay. So great. So, so she's a really good one for people to listen to because she's she's very down to earth. She does come at it from a Christian sort of scriptural standpoint, um, but she's very grounded in science as well. And um, not that those two things are mutually exclusive, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, but she's wonderful, and she she just explains it very clearly, and she talks about toxic thoughts and how our brain can get toxic and we have to detox it and by choosing different thoughts. And she uses the analogy, and I've talked to my patients a lot about this too, of when we have a, a thought pattern, if it's just, you know, if it's only a thought that's happened once or, you know, a couple of times, it's going to be like a little dirt trail that you can walk along. And then if we keep thinking and choosing that thought pattern, yeah then it'll be like a dirt road and then we keep choosing it and then it's like a paved road and yes. then we keep choosing it and then it's a two-lane street and then we keep choosing it and then it's a freeway and then so you know it's a really good analogy for me of just how we have to keep reinforcing and the more we choose a certain thought the stronger that neural pathway becomes and that's I mean, that's just pure science. I used to think all that positive thinking stuff was a bit hokey, but this is just, you know, neuroplasticity is pure science. And so she just puts it in really good perspective and good sort of plain language that, that people can understand. So if anyone's listening and is interested in this sort of neuroplasticity topic and, and just the power of our thoughts, I would recommend looking her up. She'd, she's got a ton of stuff on YouTube and she's been interviewed on different podcasts and shows and she's got a few books out too, um, but people can get that information, you know, online and learn more about it. But I think what's most important to to kind of really get is those super highways that we can create can be positive thoughts or negative thoughts. And so, if people 
you know, kind of get stuck in the, I'm never going to get better. Um, this is the rest of my life. There is no hope for me. Then those neural pathways will solidify. Yes. And just as a quick note, we'll put links to some of those books and some of that information in the, in the show notes section. And so that people can just, yeah, come up and, and click on there. The other thing I want to bring up with it, it's funny, we're here, we're going to go into to philosophy a little bit. And there was for a very long time in education an idea that a, a mind need to be, needed to be disciplined and you needed to discipline your own mind and train your own mind. And then kind of the sixties and the seventies happened and it was like, that was all thrown out the window. It's like, no, we want to be spontaneous. We want to just go with the flow. We want all this kind of stuff. And we've lost some of this reality, what you're talking about, this neuroplasticity. That I, and we were rediscovering that, no, indeed, our, our, our mind can be like a, like a puppy. You know? And if we don't train it, it's going to make a mess where we don't want it to make a mess. <laughs> Now, it's going to pee on the carpet. It sure. told, yeah, <laughs> if, that's exactly right. Your brain is not your friend. Your mind, let's your mind is not your friend. I've heard somebody say that. It's like, it's, you know, it's there. And, and so many thoughts, they're not even really thoughts. They're just things that have been heard and it just gets broadcast across our mind. And it's like, where does that stuff come from? You know, yeah. and it, just like you said, if you if you latch on to some of that stuff and follow it around and keep walking those pathways again and again, that that's the myelin being built up, and then it becomes automatic, and then that's when you know you smell that one smell, and you have this horrible reaction because somebody when you were three did something mean to you, and it's right. automatic. It's you know it's it's powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. Now that kind of gets us to PSTD. PTSD. Sorry, I always switch things around. PTSD. What yeah. do you see a correlation there? You know, it's interesting. So, I was listening to Dr. Bob Bransfield, who is brilliant, and he was talking about it at the ILADS conference last year. Not this one that just happened, but last year. And it was fascinating to me because I do have a subset of patients where I feel like I see that and. Obviously, for some people, PTSD is relating to events that might have occurred earlier in life, um, and so that might impact stress responses, putting the body in more of a sympathetic um, kind of nervous system fight or flight kind of response and getting locked in there, and then Lyme disease comes along that doesn't do the neurological system any favors, and it just compounds. So I think there's two different aspects to it. One is maybe a PTSD from something that's sort of been separate to Lyme and happened in the past, but maybe does create some of those emotional blocks or or psychological blocks to have to work through. And then the Lyme kind of compounds the issue. But I think there are some people who have PTSD relating to their experience of Lyme to date. Um, and just the shocking stories, and I'm sure you do too, we, we hear as practitioners the stories of people who've seen 20 different doctors and they've been told that they're crazy and they've been, you know, sent out of doctor's offices in tears. And, I mean, it's it's some pretty brutal stuff. So I think it's important to toe the line between that can sort of create a form of PTSD um, and so that needs to be 
looked at and respected. Um, and then going back to what we were just talking about of like people, I suggest people get help to work through that if they need some professional support to work through that for the very reasons we were just talking about. Because if they do find themselves stuck in that loop um, about it, all the injustices and things that happened to them, then that's not doing them any favors either. So I think there's this sort of this sensitivity that we have to have in encouraging people to look ahead and look forward and look with hope and look with positivity, but not totally ignoring their history and not ignoring what's happened so far. And so that's where I think um, whether it be talk therapy or um, I have a couple of patients who've done well with um, EMDR and or EFT tapping can be Mm -hmm. very helpful. But utilizing those tools so that patients can put that behind them. Yes, it happened. We're not pretending it didn't. We're not taking away from their experience, but we're also deciding consciously not to live in that place. And I think often that does take professional support and help. You know, it's very interesting. There's a parallel diagnosis. I'm trained as a five element acupuncturist. And there's a parallel diagnosis and we give it the nickname being possessed. And essentially it's, it's PTSD. Now the interesting thing about possession in our tradition is there can be an external possession. So you can have the exact same symptoms caused by a, an environmental shock. And in some of the old texts, they refer to uh, in th- chronic kind of infections like Lyme disease. They didn't call it Lyme, but they had their own term for it. They called goo, a goo syndrome. So a goo syndrome was also a possession. So they believed you could have the PTSD symptoms simply by being infected like that. It's it's fascinating. That is fascinating. And I'll often do this treatment on my Lyme patients, even though they don't have any history of, of trauma, any actual uh, trauma. Uh, but you, you can, and I'm sure you can see, you can see it in their eyes. They're just mm-hmm. not quite, you can't quite contact their spirit. It's like there's a mm-hmm. little, there's a veil in between. Um, and it's, it's really wonderful when you see that list, uh, lift and, uh, the eyes, the sparkle returns to the eyes. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Now, in the, toward the last chapters in your book, you interviewed some interesting folks. Yes. I did. Yeah, so we're going to turn the tables a little bit uh, and have you talk about your role as an interviewer. What what was what were some gems that you got from these conversations with these experts? I mean, you you interviewed Scott Forsgren, Connie Stresheim, Sandy Breenbaum. I mean, uh, all kinds of good people there. All kinds of good people and brilliant people. So <laughs> yes. I'm leaving really... some out, but please forgive me. I didn't mean to cause any uh stress there (laughs) yeah um that yeah i mean great and i tried to sort of find a mix of different kinds of practitioners i mean bob ransfield a psychiatrist leo shea is a brilliant phd um and he does a lot of sort of neuropsychiatric assessment and then sandy berenbaum um who i adore she's a licensed clinical social worker and so she's got a practice full of um family she works a lot with family units who have Lyme disease. And so they all have a slightly different role, um, but they're all 
kind of helping people with the Lyme brain kind of aspect of things. Um, and so, and then, you know, Scott Forsgren is very, very knowledgeable and um, has a lot of good experience with different therapies and different modalities, as does Connie. And Connie's had a lot of exposure to different practitioners through her books as well. So it was just really sort of neat to hear the different perspectives. I would have to say between Scott and Connie, the common thread that came out of both of those, ironically, was sort of how how little it's really about treating the infection. And I may be saying that a little bit out of turn. I'm not sure they were saying that, but I'll reword it and say the emphasis on addressing detoxification and um, reducing inflammation in the body. So of those two who are both, you know, people who've treated themselves for Lyme and have been in that sort of world for several years, um, that's kind of their main focus at this point and Connie talked about the importance of amino acid therapy for her and how that was very very pivotal in regulating her kind of brain function um, so that was really interesting they talked sort of both of them at this point aren't really doing the antibiotic therapy as much as they're working on natural natural means and um, a lot about detox and a lot about reducing inflammation in the body and, yeah, I mean, I loved talking to Leo Shea because he gave really good perspective about how some people present sort of with more cognitive issues, some it's more emotional, and some are more behavioral. Mm. And just the interplay between those three things. And um, so, you know, behavioral meaning sort of some people are developing more sort of protective behaviors or even... I don't know, getting into self-harm. I mean, some of the behaviors and how they impact in the emotional state and how that impacts in the cognitive. So his job is to sort of sort those things out and kind of lead people to the kinds of therapies that are going to help them the most. Um, and I loved, you know, when I spoke to the physicians or the the, the practitioners, I should say, one of the things that really came out from my conversations with all three of them was the message that people really have to be not just advocates for themselves, that's not the right word, but people, I think it was Sandy who said it the best, you can't be a survivor and a thriver at the same time. Um, that was a term that, that she had coined. And and so, I mean, come here we are again talking about the positive outlook, but they were all very emphatic about that, that... Um, that so much had to do with a patient's sort of mental state and their mental decisions that they made and that they people patients can't get stuck in what's happened in the past because it will impact their recovery and it will impact their physical symptoms today and moving forward. So I love that because that's something I'm really big on. And then in speaking to these three brilliant practitioners, all three of them had mentioned something along those lines, something in that vein. So that really reinforced to me the impact and the importance of it. Now, how can folks get your book? Um, well, it is, they can either go to uh, limebrain.com and order it there. It is on Amazon. And last time I looked, Amazon actually had it on, on a pretty special rate. I can actually tell you right now exactly what that was, but people should look on Amazon because they're really good about that. 
Um, and we actually have it on our Restore Medicine website as well. So if people want to go to restoremedicine.com, and Restore does not have an E on the end, so it's R-E-S-T-O-R-Medicine.com. The other thing I have on my website there that might be interesting to folks is um, a little ebook I put together on 10 things that can hold back your recovery from Lyme disease. And so it just goes through um, some of the things that I think are kind of the big deal in hindrances to recovery. Um, and so that's available for free for anyone that goes to Restore Medicine and can just download that. Brilliant. And we'll put a direct link to that on the show notes, too. That's fantastic. That's a great resource. Yeah, I think it'll be helpful. And just to let you know, too, I'm, um, I'm actually my new project is I'm working on creating some online courses and creating a Lyme practitioner training program. Oh, wonderful. Um, and then I'm going to have some courses, online courses available for patients as well. So, again, if people are interested in what might be coming up with that, they can just go to restoremedicine.com and, um, and join our newsletter list, and then they will be notified of any developments on that front. That's wow. my new project I'm working on. Oh, brilliant. I have to go right on over to restore.com and put my name on the queue. There you go. <laughs> I'm very interested. I would love to learn from you. Let me just give you the opportunity to say anything that I kind of, you know, I lead the conversation, so I may have led you away from anything that you wanted to say. Is there something, some message you want to leave people with? I think just to feel empowered and do the little things that they can do in their own home. Um, I know that a lot of people have sort of doctor fatigue and treatment fatigue and it's hard to know sometimes it's hard to know who to trust and are they on the right treatment path and should they be doing antibiotics or not and all of that can be very sort of anxiety provoking so I really think that the things people can do for themselves at home are really crucial and that may be more physical things like detoxification you know saunas or coffee enemas or um, whatever the case may be, but I do think that the nutrition is a big, big thing, and that's something that people have, you know, control over, and that they have that they can empower themselves by by really paying attention to their nutrition, but also just being kind to themselves, doing journaling, um, if they enjoy art, then drawing or painting, and even if their brain isn't working quite the way they want doesn't matter do it anyway sit down play the piano it doesn't matter if you make mistakes you know just kind of giving themselves that time and and just indulging the the passions and the loves that they have even if they can't do it as well as they want and just being gentle with themselves and not getting frustrated if if it doesn't go quite according to plan but i think you know art music um, movement journaling writing and maybe just you know getting out in nature and sitting and staring at the trees, but just anything <laughs> to kind of get them back in that parasympathetic mode and just reconnected with their heart. Yes, the, the whole flow phenomenon, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. very beautifully said. And I did remember what I forgot to ask you. Are you still accepting patients? I am, yeah. I mean, I'm booking sort of three or four months out, but I am accepting patients. Okay. And to get hold of you, restore.com as well, yes? Restoremedicine.com. Restoremedicine.com. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. I really You're appreciate so awesome. it. Uh, yeah, it was great book. You. I'm I'm so excited to finish reading it and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. You're really a gem in the Lyme world, and uh, we're so lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
So I really enjoyed listening to this interview um, with Dr. Ducharme. You know, I it, it always I think it's really important to that we continue to look at how Lyme disease affects, you know, the brain and examine the cognitive symptoms. And, you know, you guys mentioned something a little bit towards the end where you said your brain is not your friend. And, (laughs) you know, it's funny because it's true. It really is. You know, that's something that I've been saying to my patients for many, many, many years, even before I got interested in Lyme disease. And it's even doubly true for Lyme disease. When your brain gets inflamed, it's firing off all kinds of weird memories and voices inside your head. And it's not necessarily your friend. Like, you would do well to treat your thoughts as uh, unwelcome guests many times rather than entertaining them and inviting them in and, and talking to them. So that's what we mean by that. A, a disciplined mind is kind of an old-fashioned way of thinking about that. The other thing I want to mention is we did interview Dr. Nicola many, many moons ago, episode number 27. So if you want to compare how much Aurora and I have improved over the many, almost 100 episodes. We're at 117, so that was 90 episodes ago. Good mm-hmm. grief. <laughs> Hopefully we're better than we were back then. But Yeah. Yeah. So if you want a good laugh, go ahead back and listen to number 27. Actually, it's a great interview. Dr. Nicola is a wonderful resource in the Lyme community, and we're so glad to have her writing books for us. She's really just absolutely fantastic. And also, I want to give out a shout to those of you who have joined the Keto Challenge. We're starting to get some emails back. Aurora, will you read that email we got a few weeks ago? Yeah, so a few weeks ago, we got this. I just took my first dose of ketones. I used 16 ounces of water and drank only 8 ounces, saving the rest for the afternoon. I immediately, even before finishing the eight ounces, felt my vision clearing and energy getting stronger. I could stand up better. And we'll not go into that now. Just wanted to give you a short report. So that's what happens when your mitochondria gets fed. Everything just perks up. And ketones are a great fuel for your mitochondria. It bypasses the glucose pathways, the pyruvate pathways, and it also bypasses the fat, the lipid pathways, and the protein pathway. just kind of slides right on into those mitochondria, and they love it. To enter the Keto Challenge, just go on over to LimeNinja.com, and you'll see a little splash screen. Click on the Learn More button, and that'll take you to the Keto Challenge page. Also, we are giving away Dr. Ducharme's book, Lime Brain. So head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and click on this podcast and you'll see where you can enter to win. Exactly. Just go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you'll see a picture of Dr. Ducharme and her name. Just click on that and that'll take you to the show notes page. And there you'll see instructions on how to enter to win the book. And by any chance, if you're listening to this like a year later, 
just go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and click the most recent interview. And there probably will be a contest. We're trying to do this every week, but depending on who we're interviewing and prizes available, there may not be. But we're trying to do this more often than not. So it's worth heading over there, LimeNinjaRadio.com. Click on the most recent interview and enter to win. And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you better informed than you were before, even more than Dr. Nicola has done, right, Omar? <laughs> exactly. Oh, you need to know. You need to know the Lime Ninja fact of the day, especially this one. And here it is. Did you know all ninjas share the same email address? Gmail at ninja.com. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.